The Air Force has big ambitions for incorporating artificial intelligence into warfighting. But there's one big problem. As of now, the service doesn't have the processes or infrastructure to test and evaluate AI with the same rigor it uses for the rest of its weapon systems. And that's one of the main conclusions of a new study from the National Academy of Sciences, which says it's time for the Air Force to start building those processes. May Casterline is the co-chair of the committee that conducted the study at the Air Force's request. She spoke with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu about what they found. The main difference between AI-enabled systems and more traditional systems is the rapid pace at which AI can change in response to data. So you retrain AI with new data as it comes in, and that creates a new version of the model. If situations are changing rapidly, then you likely want your model to adapt rapidly, and that involves retraining with new data. So it involves a fast, continuous cycle that the current sort of test and eval system isn't really set up to adapt to that at that pace that it would be required. Right now, it's a very almost serial approach. It's very linear and, and waterfall-esque with defined milestones that take a bit longer uh, timelines to execute. Uh, and you just will not be able to adapt to the changes in operations as fast as you would like using those mechanisms. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I, but I, th- I think the way we think about T&E is still the same in an AI context, right? That the overall objective is to make sure that the thing is going to do what it's intended to do. If that's right, what might the process look like other than not being serial in an AI context compared to a more military hardware centric context? What are the what are the main differences that you would look for in a in a reliable test and evaluation process? So the biggest difference in AI that you also have to account for in, in test is because it's a learned process, there's always a stochastic component to the model. There is there is something we can't quite write down on paper mathematically to explain. The model is the result of a learning process. The main goals are the same. You want to test for functional performance, and then how does that functional uh, performance actually relate to operational performance. Those constructs conceptually are the same. You just now have to adapt for the fact that this thing isn't as formulaic as traditional empirical things are. We can't write down the math necessarily on paper that explains why it makes the decision it, it does. It's, it's making its decision based on, on learned structure within the data. So you tend to rely significantly on modeling and simulation um, to capture the nuances in all the operational conditions that you're training your AI against to, to really cover the sort of domain breadth that the AI needs to, to capture. So those main differences tend to require a lot more automation and a lot more technology to, to implement and, and sort of orchestrate. It's not to say that's not the same for tradition. Like you do have to do a lot of orchestration and instrumentation for large platforms, obviously also, but it's, it's more the stochastic nature of, of AI that you have to build more robust um, and adaptive T&E to more or less. So, you know, going back to what, what you were indicating before, if, if the, the data inputs are constant and the system is constantly learning over time, including during an operational phase when this system is fielded, that suggests the T&E process really never ends. Is that going too far? I mean, you're, you're going to need a test and evaluation system that's plugged into operations for as long yes. as the system's functioning. That's exactly the point. You're continuously testing and evaluating. Um, that, and that is the other big break, right? Like 
historically, you know, the traditional way of doing things is it's developmental testing, operational testing, initial operational capability, full operational capability. It's a, it's a process that you follow and then whatever was built gets turned over to an operational group to, to run, to use. Here, as you are deploying AI, it's out in the field, it's seeing new things, it's making decisions. Uh, if you want it to be able to make a new decision to react to something new that it hasn't seen before, you have to retrain. If you retrain, you have a new thing, you have a new model. If you have a new model, we have to we have to test that that model still performs the way we expected it to prior. It can still do all of the things we expected it to, plus whatever new task or capability we've now expected it to learn. So you have to be able to test that in order to redeploy it. And right now, the way we do that is, you know, that would go bring all go all the way back to the beginning of the test cycle and and then back out. But the pace at which this data is going to be coming at us, the way the environments are likely going to be changing. This means you're going to have to retrain and by extension, retest much uh, faster and and more often. And so that does mean test components, test infrastructure. It's up for the Air Force really to figure out how to how to um, implement this uh, does have to extend and it becomes more of a real time operational testing is is conceptually what what I've thought about in my my head. Um, That's you know, they would have to come up with a way to think about it. But the, it's it's sort of like that, yes. And you mentioned there are some at least close analogies to this in, in the commercial sector with autonomous vehicle industry. Why is that not the complete answer? Why can you not just lift and shift those solutions in the way that they're doing this this continuous learning process into a military context? There is a lot to take from commercial industry. They have solved a lot of the technology hurdles that are going to be required. So there are these core, there's core components and practices that uh, can be looked at as like parts of the blueprint. You know, AI ops, uh, you know, the operations of AI uh, training or AI factories, that is is replicated in many industries at this point, right? There's There are examples of this in industry. There's a handful of places though, where DOD specific deployments start to break that mold, that that actual model from commercial. The, the big ones that always stand out to me is for sure this, um, the fact that real-time operational testing likely has to happen closer to the platform. We can't bring everything back home all the time. And that's really a function of having adequate communication, adequate pipes out to the field. We have to be able to move data, big chunks of data back and forth. So if you don't have comms, then, then you have to be able to do it more locally. Uh, and that breaks with sort of the traditional commercial model that backhauls everything to a cloud, perhaps, or a centralized data center and does it all in-house. Um, the next place it gets challenging, why you can't lift and shift, has to do with uh, there's really extreme um, swap constraints, so size, weight, and power that are very unique to DOD. Uh, the ruggedization and environmental conditions um, make the hardware have to be slightly specialized. And so you can't just lift and shift exactly what they do in commercial for say, you know, um, robotics applications and things like that. There's a lot of security requirements that commercial, uh, they, they tackle some of them, but not all. And then there's a lot of bespoke phenomenology that has to be modeled to really create the simulation capability to deal with edge cases and, and retraining of these models for rare events. So stuff like that, that's pretty bespoke and specialized, the DOD, you won't get from commercial. 
but you could certainly look at them as an example and then have the department and the, the industrial base really invest in those gaps to make uh, that model work within this ecosystem. And I'm glad you said DOD toward the end there, because we should probably make clear that the only reason we're picking on the Air Force here is the Air Force is who asked you to do yeah. this report. So it's not like they're behind necessarily. This is a DOD-wide problem. Is that fair? So from the committee's perspective, we were scoped to the Air Force. Right. So the report is largely investigating the Air Force's um, current state of t e However, you know, we did uh, have some input from more department level groups. And then also there's just a fair bit of experience on the committee itself. So yes, I think that's a fair statement. They're, they're no far behind than other agencies necessarily, at least at the scale component. The committee didn't find any evidence that there was a large hiding enterprise scale T&E framework anywhere in the in the department. But the only caution I would say is that's not a reason to not do this now. Unfortunately, we don't have time to get into all of your recommendations. And as you said, a lot of this is going to be for the Air Force itself to figure out. But but if you had to pick one, what's the biggest thing that they need to get started on like today? I think the thing that that came through pretty loud and clear is is the concept of the the champion. TNE is so pervasive. It turns out and it, their questions were originally fairly narrow, um, you know, and, and, and that's not to knock them. It was just the questions they thought to ask. However, when you really start to pick apart the implications of test and evaluation and operationalizing AI, you realize how many places within the department will have to get uh, involved and, and change and modify. So you really need a single entity person who has the responsibilities, authorities, and liabilities to, to execute that and and add rigor to the the and approaches across the department. And I guess that takes me to what I think is probably going to have to be my last question, which is, you know, since, since the implications of AI are going to be so pervasive and it's going to be embedded in probably physical weapon systems pretty soon here, should we maybe be talking about just an entirely new T&E process with AI embedded in that process as opposed to a traditional T&E process over here for weapon systems and a separate T&E process for AI over here on the other side? It, it'll be up to the department to decide. I think one of the key takeaways from talking with uh, commercial industry is when building AI-enabled systems, the functional requirements, the solutions that were engineered to provide the, the answer to the, any given functional requirement if AI was part of that solution, the T&E component of it was thought up upfront. So before proposing a particular technical solution, the next question is how would we test it? And that, that order doesn't necessarily play out in traditional T&E the way we do weapon systems now. So that is a totally different way of, of um, handling requirements and their connection to TNE from the beginning. Whether or not you have to create a, a, a parallel TNE process for AI or you can adapt existing um, is really up to how the, the department wants to tackle it. But at minimum, it'll have to um, bring TNE into the requirements conversation significantly sooner to be able to support the development effectively. May Casterline, co-chair of a National Academies of Science committee that is just out with a new report on AI testing and evaluation for the Air Force. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com.
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. 
as CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast a vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative, it's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. (laughs) Um, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, Integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. 
Okay, I, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.